Welcome to the Words Matter podcast, the Course Health series. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So we're now up to chapter seven of the Course Health book, and we've now entered part two of the book, where we will discuss the clinical application of the dispositionless view of complexity and person-centred care that Course Health advocates. And in this episode, I'm speaking with Christine Price about her chapter seven, titled The Complexity of Persistent Pain, A Patient's Perspective. Christine has experienced neuropathic pain since 2008. She writes blogs and talks about her experiences of living well with pain, which is directed at both clinicians and patients. She is a regular presence on Twitter, posting resonating content which check and reminds clinicians on who and what we should be centering our practice on. And you can find Christine on Twitter via the handle at livingwellpain. So in this episode, we talk about Christine's persistent pain journey and her experience of the care she received early on. With the benefit of hindsight and with the philosophical framework of causal complexity, she reflects on the biomedical assumptions and models which led to a standardised and ultimately ineffective management approach to her pain. We talk about how her own understanding of causation influenced the way she understood her initial onset of pain and its persistence in the first year. We talk about how she later met a physiotherapist named Matt Lowe and experienced care informed by a dispositionless clinical framework and the changes that resulted in how she thought and felt about her neuropathic pain and her subsequent self-management. We talk about how she's developed an interest in philosophy and became involved in the Core Health Researcher Network. Finally, Christine's chapter has been by far the most downloaded chapter in the book and we touch on why this might be the case and the main messages she wanted to convey in the chapter and the importance of communicating philosophy to clinicians but also to patients. So I'd been looking for an opportunity to speak with Christine on the podcast for a long time and this Course Health series provided the perfect setting. There is so much to learn from Christine's story and her perspective on how monocausal biomedicalism limited her recovery and her experience of the impact of a therapeutic interaction with a clinician adopting a more complex view of causality with a clinical gaze focused on Christine as a person and her unique dispositions. So I bring you Christine Price. Christine, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Thank you for having me, Oliver. So we're on chapter seven of the Course Health series, and you and I are going to talk about your chapter, which is titled The Complexity of Persistent Pain, A Patient's Perspective. And this is the most downloaded chapter of all the chapters in the Course Health book, which I'm so pleased about. I mean, it should be <laughs> it should be the most downloaded chapter, and it says a lot certainly about your chapter. So we can talk a bit more about that later on. Thank you. So maybe you could tell us a bit about your persistent pain journey and 
particularly those those early years of developing patient pain and some of the the experiences in managing it. So I've been living with persistent pain for around about 12 years now. And most of my pain is now neuropathic, but probably wasn't to start with. And it followed a, a manual handling injury, which followed two weeks of me trying to clear out a, a loft in a Victorian house. I think I might have thought I was Hercules and was doing far too much. And it, it started really quite quite gently. So one Saturday morning, I woke up, discovered that, that I could just feel a little bit of a twinge of pain. But by the lunchtime, I just, I just knew that I was in trouble, knew that I was in difficulty. And over that weekend, it just developed. And it developed to the stage where I couldn't walk anymore. Um, I was in just excruciating pain. Because I couldn't walk and because I was in so much pain, I couldn't actually go to the loo, which was a bit of a problem. So when my husband called out um, a GP, they were obviously quite concerned about that. I, I, I know now that they probably thought that they needed to check the cord equiner, but I didn't know that at that point. So I was taken into hospital um, where I stayed for five days. I was discharged from hospital but even after five days of, you know, high doses of medication and everything else, I was still in a fairly desperate situation. So I still could barely walk. I couldn't sit down properly. I couldn't put my socks and shoes on. I couldn't get dressed. I couldn't look after myself. It was fairly desperate. And I guess I've I've sort of slowly and gradually recovered, if you can call it recovered, from from that over over the years. In terms of medical care, I had about 17 months of conservative care. I think you're only supposed to have about six months of conservative care and they'll, then they'll get a surgeon to look at you. But I didn't have a surgeon look at me until 15 months into my journey. Perhaps just give a... Give us a flavour of the sorts of approaches that, that you sought. Yeah. So so it was very much following what a biomedical type of model. So it was very much strong medications. I used to say that I used to live in the land of the fairies <laughs> with all the side effects. Um, I had the various injections. I had, before surgery, I had two episodes of care from physiotherapists. And I, I yeah, I saw a lot of healthcare professionals but it was it was it was all very focused on on the prolapse disc which which i had and then there was a decision to to have surgery yeah they they decided that they would operate because the sciatic and nerve root was was compressed and had been all all the time obviously um so they did a decompression surgery now the the surgeons were absolutely delighted because they they thought that they you know they'd done well their their job had been done it was it was a good outcome but of course the only problem was that that I continued to live in pain um it didn't really help my pain situation at all so they called it failed back surgery syndrome which is a term that I just I just absolutely hate and so thinking back and you you so 
you alluded to the, to the sorts of approaches that you had were biomedically orientated. I'm guessing at the time you didn't, they didn't appear biomedically orientated treatments or, or care. They were just care. I'm, I'm assuming that in hindsight, you can look back and, and begin to describe those approaches quite differently. Yeah, I didn't know any difference. So I just accepted the care that I was given very gratefully. I didn't know to ask for anything different or to expect anything different. And yes, as you say, it's only looking back in hindsight that I realised that things could have been different. And to be honest, I, I might have had different outcomes now. Who who knows? So so I had surgery, um, which which didn't work. At the at the time I still was teaching, so so my profession was was teaching. Um and I realised with, with the help of a physiotherapist actually, who did me a great favour by suggesting that actually maybe that wasn't the best career for me taking the situation I was in. So I stopped teaching, went to work part-time. I continued to see quite a lot of healthcare professionals and they put me on a spinal cord stimulator pathway. And it was while I was on that spinal cord stimulator pathway, which for me lasted about two years, which is an awful long time to be on a pathway, I basically asked my rheumatologist if there was anything else that could be done. And she put me in touch with with Matt, so she referred me to, to Matt as a, a physiotherapist. And that was about four years into my persistent pain journey that, that I met Matt. And yes, that, that changed my situation dramatically. And was it a, when the consultant referred you for essentially some more physiotherapy, which had previously failed, and I recognise that you were in a, this was, you were now post-surgery when you saw Matt and pre-surgery previously the physiotherapy was it just a stroke of luck that you saw Matt or was there some do you know if there was some conscious decision that Matt's expertise around persistent pain or persistent spinal pain would relate well to your situation so I don't know but I believe that my rheumatologist who worked closely with Matt handpicked him for me at the time he was an extended scope physiotherapist and I think he was interested or I'm not too sure what the terminology is but I think he was interested in spinal problems so yes I, I think there was a, a conscious move that that maybe he could help me what the the main reason that I was referred um or asked to be referred again was because sitting down is hugely painful for me and I was at that time still having problems with sitting down so it was a question of can anybody do anything else to actually help me be able to sit down which is where Matt came in. And so for for listeners that don't know Matt Lowe he's he was the record leader of appearances on this podcast I think he's been recently beaten by Rani but Matt Lowe is a is an excellent physiotherapist and clinician and academic but do you recall your first appointment with Matt? I do. <laughs> what was that like? Uh, it, it, it's easy for me to recall, because to, to be honest, um, in Bournemouth there were two hospitals, Christchurch Hospital and Bournemouth Hospital. Most of my physiotherapy had taken place in Christchurch Hospital, so I dutifully went to Christchurch Hospital, but of course the appointment was at Bournemouth Hospital. <laughs> so, so, yeah, it was a bit of a false start, so I had to dive across from one hospital to another. But yes, the, the first appointment, it was quite a long appointment. I think he normally has an hour for his appointments. And the the first appointment probably wasn't that much different to 
the other appointments that I'd had where he was listening and, you know, taking on board and doing all the examinations to look for all the red flags and all that sort of thing. It was the it was what happened after that that was very, very different to the physiotherapy that I'd had before. By by that stage I'd had four episodes of care from physiotherapists, so so he was the fifth. And so it would be understandable to enter that interaction with oh, another bout of physiotherapy, you know, about episode number five, but you were obviously open or desperate to have some some care or, or some treatment. I think desperate is probably quite but but also to be honest looking back it's easy easy for me to to look back and say actually I'm not sure those first four episodes of care from physiotherapy were that effective but at the time I didn't know that so I was it was almost like being on a treadmill that I was just going from one healthcare professional to another to another just desperately trying to to improve my situation and accepting whatever care I was I was given. I didn't know anything else, to be honest. I didn't know any better. And I think, you know, what we don't intend to do is to, is to criticise the care that you had previously. But I, I guess I'm obviously clinically the outcome from those early sessions of physiotherapy weren't effective, hence your, your surgery. But I just wonder if there were some things that you took from them and whether it was just the fact that there are options of care, whether or not they were effective or not, but you had a, a choice to, to see someone and, and for someone to, to listen to you. So was there any benefit aside from actual material clinical effectiveness? Did you retrieve any benefit from those? That That's really hard to answer <laughs> because I also don't want to be in any way critical or, or anything else. The, the two things that I took away from it, um, one was... I was involved in some group exercise back classes, which were probably quite good to give me a bit of confidence and get going. And the other was the physiotherapist who actually said to me, look, you know, do you think you should change career? In terms of the actual physiotherapy, it was, I had a manual handling, sorry, not manual handling, manual therapy, but it is manual handling really, isn't it? But manual therapy and I was taught to do a lot of things like core exercises so I wasn't helped with my own independence and function so for example coming out of hospital like I couldn't walk and I taught myself how to walk by you know going out onto the seafront and you know every day trying to walk a bit further and that sort of stuff so I wasn't functionally helped beyond the clinic door and I wasn't taught to understand pain and I wasn't taught what neuropathic pain was so so there wasn't anything mm. lasting from those sessions and and obviously the wonderful perspective that your chapter offers is your perspective as a patient on all of the material and information and positions that cause health promote around causation and making that linkage between the theory of causation or complexity that that's advocated by cause health and linking it to kind of real real life essentially you know and these concepts can be abstract and convoluted and difficult to get to kind of bend one's head around but your chapter really nicely demonstrates their salience you know their real their real relevance to people 
those early sessions, did you have much of a sense of what causation meant or causes? And you attributed cause to your back pain by some manual handling. So maybe consciously you weren't thinking about causes and dispositions, but but I just wonder how you view your thinking around causation back then, now. So I think that's quite simple, really. Um, I think basically um, I just assumed, and this is what I was being told by healthcare professionals, that, I mean, they told me I had a slip disc, and I know that's not terminology that people people like anymore, but, you know, I was... I assumed that everything to do was to do with the injury. So everything was to do with the disc that had prolapsed. And I guess I'm not sure that I consciously thought it at the time, but but looking back, I think it was just like when I fell off a bike as a kid, I had an injury and that injury would be painful and it would heal and it would go away and then it would stop being painful and I think I just viewed my back mm. in that sort of way. So there was an injury. Somebody would mend it. Um, it would be painful while it was mending. And, you know, once they'd mended it, then then that would be fine. And that's that's just, that was where my understanding was at. It was just totally focused on on the back problem as being the only cause of, of the pain. So that, so that single cause, single effect. Yeah. Yeah. And and that was what, what I was being told. So, you know, for the first four years, I wasn't really told much else. So I wasn't told anything about complexity of pain or that there was anything, any other causal factors, if you like, that feed into the experience of pain. And so we'll talk about how how your interest developed in those areas. And but I, I think we, we finished on after your first session with, with Matt and how maybe some of those the changes seem to occur in the following sessions not necessarily after that first session so the follow-up sessions were were quite different maybe begin to tell us about those sessions and at the same time you can maybe signpost where a complexity view of causation came into his his thinking your thinking and the treatment approaches so so it's interesting so for, for my memory and i'm only going from memory Every session with Matt was was slightly different, but it always built on the one before. Um, so he he very much looked at my function. He he basically looked at me as an individual, and everything he did was personalised down to me. And he he took what I would call a real interest in me as a person, and got to know me as as a person. And it was. He, he very much empowered me and enabled me to actually take part in those sessions and to become a much more active part in my in my care but but yeah one of the the biggest things um, that he taught me and he helped me with was to actually understand that pain is more complex and to actually understand that the you know many many factors to it some of it to do with my physical body like you know central nervous system and all that sort of stuff and what was happening with with my sciatic nerve root and and everything like that but beyond that so I know it sounds daft but 
I needed him to reflect back to me that actually when I was stressed, I was in more pain and I needed him to help me to start to notice what was going on in my life and how that impacted on my experience of of pain. How did that, so you became more aware of the complexity of pain and the range of factors or contextual factors which could influence influence your pain i just wonder how that helped you i mean it's one thing just knowing it but what was the the difference it made to you so so once you can actually understand what what's going on then then a comes actually some some acceptance with that so um knowledge is everything really isn't it so if, if you understand what's happening then you can accept it more and you can you can live more at peace so that's that's quite a big thing i think but if you can understand all these different factors that are affecting your pain, then you can start to manage your pain. So you can start to look at different ways of managing your life, managing what you do in order to live with less pain. And and that's basically what I did. And I guess Matt supported me in learning to self-manage my pain, which then meant that I could live a better life with pain. And, you know, that that was one of the things. So after I saw Matt for the the first episode of care, because I've had two episodes of care with him, I stopped taking medications, which which I was finding difficult at the time anyway. I came off the spinal cord stimulator pathway and I decided that I was just going to manage my pain through an understanding of, of pain. And that's what I've been doing ever since, really. And it's good. It's fine. Much better than taking medications. Or more surgery. Or more surgery. <laughs> yeah, indeed. So, and do you recall when dispositionism came into your interactions with Matt? And was there a moment where you said, right, well, today we're going to talk about dispositionism or, or did it? Yeah, I'm just interested how, because obviously in, in the chapter, you write so coherently about it. And I just wonder where that knowledge and kind of awareness of those concepts and theories came in? So after that first episode of Care with Matt, um, four years into the journey, I I decided that I was only going to self-manage. I, I actually cut myself off from healthcare for a few years. I decided I didn't want anything more to do with them. I just wanted to self-manage my pain. But after a few years, of course, I started to struggle a bit more. And I went to my GP and said, look, I think I need a bit more professional input. Please refer me back to Matt because he was the the only person really that's been able to help me. So that must have been about, I don't know, eight years into my journey by by then. So I went back and um, Matt helped me with some more practical things. But he also helped me revise what I'd learned about the understanding of pain. Now, in those intervening years, Matt had joined Cause Health and he'd been learning about causation and dispositionalism and embedded it into his practice. So it was at that stage that I started to learn about causation and dispositionalism. I can't tell you, I can't remember, to be honest, how during the sessions he introduced it, but but he did. But obviously I read the papers that he's written about it but then I also started writing the blog. So I started writing livingwellpain.net, 
and I I wrote a blog about my pain management. And on that particular blog, I looked at vector diagrams because Matt had introduced me to vector diagrams, which I thought were really useful actually to motivate me and to give me a goal for improving my pain. I was going to say that with with respect to the vector diagrams, and yes, you've got obviously some in your chapter and, and Matt's drawn them in some of the papers, but they're such a helpful and simple illustration, aren't they, of, of these, you know, the interactions between these different factors or events, and it's hard to communicate and they become, you know, you can get overwhelmed with the complexity of, of these things. But vector diagrams are a really simple, easy way to illustrate this interaction in, in a meaningful way. I agree. I I really like vector diagrams. They're they're visual, aren't they? And the the way I use them, you can you can see progress, and that counts for a lot when when you're in my sort of position. So yeah, I think I think they're great. But Ronnie read my blog. It was out on Twitter, so Ronnie read it, and <laughs> she contacted me, and I hadn't fully realised that there was such a connection between between Ronnie and Matt. And Ronnie sent to me a one of her papers that she'd written with, with somebody else, I think, about medically unexplained symptoms. Now, medically unexplained symptoms to me at the time was really interesting because I'd been a carer for somebody with ME, chronic fatigue syndrome. So, so that whole area was was of quite interest to me. And I read a couple of her papers and it just all started to make sense. So it it helped connect the dots, if you like, in terms of understanding something like ME. And I could also then see the parallels to my persistent pain condition. And I guess I just wanted to learn more, which is how I how I moved into the the learning more about causation, dispositionalism, and cause health, which was great. It seems that you've learned loads more than most most clinicians in in terms of philosophy and and dispositionalism. And I I wonder where that interest what continues that interest. So initially there was, uh, as you said, a benefit to you understanding your your symptoms, your pain experience and helping you manage it, are you still driven to, to learn this stuff to help your situation or now there's just an intellectual interest about, about these topics? So I haven't stopped learning yet. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I continue to learn about my, my pain conditions. So for example, over Christmas, I read Louis Gifford's books, um, which are absolutely excellent. And that has also fed into my overall understanding. So the combination of the understanding I've gained from causation, dispositionalism, predictive processing, uh, Louis Gifford's work, Matt's work, everything else continues to formulate for me. And I guess for me, what, what it does, it, it gives a picture in my mind of my situation. So having a picture in my mind of how everything works and to do with pain gives me the best opportunity to manage my pain. Hmm. And I wonder if there's any easy, accessible examples about how having a more dispositionist view of your of your pain experience, your uh, your persistent pain, how that has led you to manage it differently. And if there's any 
or operationalizing the vector diagram. So when factors seem to be driving you towards this threshold, what you do in your in your life to, to address some of those those changes? So yes, I suppose the vector diagrams give give a bit of a handle on that. So when I've looked at my context, and I'm a great one for mind maps, so I tend to mind map out all these different factors and work out which ones are impacting me and so on. I think what one of the problems I, I had was I was constantly on trains going to work and constantly having difficulties sitting and then having problems with the wind-up neuropathic pain from that and so on. So I would address literally the the cushions I carried around with me or if I realised that work stress was a particular problem, then actually because I'm self-employed, I can just cut out that section of work and go to different employers and so on. So, yeah, there are lots and lots of practical examples of me being able to say, look, I think these factors I guess, out of kilter. And if I can address this range of factors, then actually I can improve my situation. But it never works just improving one, does it? (laughs) Yeah, it's much too complex, isn't it? You have to improve more than one. One isn't going to do it for you. Yeah, and just being aware of the range of different factors and a bit here, a bit there, and and kind of trial and error, really, I think is, is what... I think what the vector diagram gives is it gives an a range of options that you can trial and see which works and which doesn't, which combination doesn't seem to work. Yeah, I agree. So your chapter is, has been the most downloaded chapter in the book, which is, as I said at the beginning, that's, that's absolutely wonderful and well-deserved. And I just wonder why you think it might have been or what that, whether you're surprised, I get a sense that you might be surprised by your reaction, but why you think it's so frequently downloaded? Do, do you know, I have absolutely no idea, if I'm absolutely honest. So I assumed that mine would be the least downloaded. So I assumed that all the clinicians would, would have all theirs downloaded and mine just would, you know, just just wouldn't even cut it. You know, nobody would want to read it. So I, I honestly don't know. I don't know whether it's something about it just being a a perspective that's missing or whether it's something about, I guess I'd like to think that maybe it's the the analogy that tries to bring together the causation dispositional theory because that's what it did for me. But I haven't got a clue. If you've got any good ideas, I don't know. No, I I think you might well be right that it's a... It's a lonely perspective in the book, but it's the only patient perspective in the book. And all the other chapters are written by academics or clinicians or academic clinicians about patients, essentially, about their experience with patients and helping patients, or theoretically how these ideas might help patients. And you really, I suppose, exemplify or operationalize this theory the, the only thing I can I can say is that from my point of view, if I if I didn't live with persistent pain, I would find it difficult to understand how all the different factors affect somebody that 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 does. 
and my experience of living with somebody with chronic fatigue syndrome, you know, it, it's much easier when you you have that perspective to understand, you know, the the idea of the the threshold of moving into an unhealthy situation, how all the different causal factors can interrelate and are interdependent and so on. So I don't know, but I'm very honoured. <laughs> very honoured. And just reflecting how you were, so you weren't empowered with this information at the beginning of your journey to where you are now, are there any, you know, what would be the most striking difference in, in terms of how you think about your persistent pain and, and how you're able to, to manage it? Is there anything which, which, which strikes you as being particular, particularly different, how you're thinking about causation, how you're thinking about your situation? What are some of the key differences viewing your experience through this framework than previously? So it's it's a bit like chalk and cheese, really. So, you know, at, at the time, in the first four years, I'm not sure that I did think about it. So I'm not sure that I did think about what I could change and what I could do that that was different, that was going to have a positive impact. I, I probably tried different things, but I I didn't proactively with, with any understanding. Whereas now... I, Every day of my life, I'm I'm not obsessive or anything like that, but I'm conscious that what I do during the day and who I am and how I feel is going to have an impact on my pain. So I'm conscious that, for example, if I want to go and work in London, London's always the worst because for me it's it's a two or th- two or three hour journey, and then I'm usually sitting in a, a meeting in London, and then I'm coming back and so on, then, yeah, I, I, I can do that. But I know that I'll probably have severe pain later during the night. And I'm conscious that I try to minimise the things that I know will trigger the pain during the day. It's it's just a total difference in awareness, I think, of, mm. of what I can do to change things. And if there were three things that you would really like readers to take away from your chapter what would they be so so one is i guess the importance of patients basically people with persistent pain having the sort of understanding that i've been given and understanding that that there's more to pain than than just the the injury the the other main difference for me or the other extra bit of learning that cause health has given to me rather than the the normal sort of pain explanations which which do go into there being more factors to pain is something about the the interdependence so again i needed it pointed out to me that you know if i'm stressed then that's going to cause sleep problems and the sleep problems are going to cause the pain um but but you know what if if anyone had asked me a couple of years ago or told me that I would find philosophy useful to to managing my pain or anything to do with my life, then I wouldn't have believed them at all. But actually it has having an understanding or or even the basic understanding that I've got about philosophy and some of the philosophical ideas 
they are hugely, hugely useful in a practical context. And I, you know, I don't know whether Ronnie's told you, but but I actually think that cause health is really good for clinicians. But actually, I'd like to see some of the ideas delivered directly to patients as well, because I think they could learn so much from it directly. Let's hope they're all downloading your chapter. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's where it's all coming from. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. of course, I'm going to agree. And I think, as I said this morning, that what Cause Health has done so nicely is to, to join the dots. And that's what you said at the beginning, that it joins the dots of of ideas and concepts which have been floating around for a few years now, but really underpins it with some with some philosophy, which makes it as a, as a framework much more usable and much more cogent. Yeah, but but apart from my chapter, the the other ideas that I think are really important in cause health, which I'm not sure that my chapter necessarily brings out in quite the same way, is very much about the uniqueness of the person and person-centred care. And actually, you know, my future care, I want it to be evidence-based and I want guidelines to be involved, but I don't want it to be strictly followed, if you like, as it was at the beginning of my care. So I want my future clinicians to look at me as a person and to individualise my care and to to just question, if you like, that that actually, you know, guidelines are good, evidence-based healthcare is good, but I'm an individual and I need to be treated as an individual. And I think that's one of the things that cause health get across beautifully, isn't it? Mm, completely. And and I said I mentioned this in previous episode with Eleanor and Rani, maybe just Eleanor actually, that ideas like being treated as an individual, patients are unique, are thrown around so you know, so frequently. I mean, all clinicians will say, oh, yes, I'm person-centred, I'm patient-centred, you know, my, my patients are unique. But, you know, you just wonder to what extent that really manifests in, in the treatments or the, or the approaches that are, that are taken with patients. And the role of the patient's narrative comes through so strongly with cause health. And I think, at least my experience, Listening skills and communication skills in clinical practice are largely around empathy and showing empathy and showing that you understand and conveying can, can, conveying that compassion, which is all really important to develop relationships. But I think what Cause Health does is put a different angle to say, actually, there's a causal story there that it's not just listening to a person for the sake of listening to them because you're in that caring position, but actually there's causal information there which has material differences to to how they recover and how they can manage their their situation absolutely 100 percent. and you know even in, in my case so so when i was discharged from hospital um obviously had an mri done while i was in hospital to check out for the cord equina and if you read my mri scan you think oh there's not a lot wrong with her there's there's nothing wrong in fact i was discharged i'm pretty sure on the basis of the mri without even being seen so now, I was in huge amounts of pain, not being able to walk, but my MRI was saying basically, oh, there's you know, hardly anything wrong with her. But, you know, if, if you take two people with the same condition, the, they are going to be totally, totally different, aren't they? And 
the the history of my persistent pain journey will be totally different to to somebody else's and i think i need to be treated as the person that i am and i need so so one of the other things that that matt was very good about was because he got to know me he was able to teach me at my level so and he was able to support me in what i needed to know instead of just delivering what he normally delivers to to everybody else. So yes, person-centred care is huge. And, you know, again, in my case, and again, not being critical, I look back on my first four years and actually I was treated fairly routinely. I wasn't treated as an individual and I desperately, desperately needed to be. Christine, thank you so much. That's been such a lovely insight and context to your chapter seven. Thank you. It's been really nice to talk to you. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs. And check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain. And I'll see you next time.